Well, slap me with your limp wrist, tickle my Elmo, and call me Nancy, because this is the very first episode of the podcast. Have a blessed day. I am your holy host, Tyler Martin, here to finally supply you with your weekly shot of spiritual comedy podcasting. If you haven't already, make sure to hit that subscribe button. Now, as you may know, originally the podcast was set to premiere June 2nd, at the beginning of Pride Month. But with recent events, I decided to postpone, focusing instead on taking action and supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. It is so important to talk about what's happening in the world right now. So bitch, we're gonna. After all, the entire reason I wanted to begin this podcast was to create a safe space for outcasts. Here, we celebrate and uplift people who have been told that they don't belong. We will hear their stories, how they are creating their own path, and making the world a better place. And our first guest fits the damn bill. Rita Brent. An extremely funny comedian, musician, and military veteran, Rita has been featured on Comedy Central, has her own special called Sip On This Tea, which is available on Vimeo and all the music streaming platforms, and even has music out, like her single, Rock Me Like a Pothole. I had the privilege of meeting Rita when she headlined a stand-up comedy show I was in, and I was immediately swept off my feet. We chat about her growing up in the South as a black female lesbian, the power of comedy, and what action we can take in these trying times. I cannot wait for you to hear her story and for you to fall in love with her just like I have. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, the leading provider of online counseling. Y'all, the world is crazy and mental health is important. Some might even call it spiritual. I personally use BetterHelp myself and absolutely love what they're doing. BetterHelp makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. So if you're struggling emotionally, battling anxiety, or you can't stop crying after an episode of Queer Eye, BetterHelp can be there for you anytime, anywhere. Go to my personal link at Better help.com slash gay to check it out and get what? 10% off. The best part is you don't even have to leave your house. They offer four ways to speak with a licensed counselor, video calls, phone calls, real-time chat, and direct messaging. All counselors have been qualified and certified by their state's professional board. In other words, you're not talking to a lobster dressed in human clothes. They're legit. All you gotta do is go to my link at betterhelp.com slash gay and begin the questionnaire to match you with a therapist who is uniquely qualified to serve your needs. How sexy. It's super duper easy and you're matched within 24 hours or less. BetterHelp has a monthly subscription rather than paying per session, which makes it cheaper. But if finances are still a concern, financial aid is available for those who qualify. Get counseling, improve your life, and help this podcast out in the process by going to betterhelp.com slash gay. Sign up today and get 10% off. That's betterhelp.com slash gay. The comedy and musical prodigy, Rita Brent. Welcome to Have a Blessed Gay. 
Hi, Tyler. First of all, let me say I absolutely love the title. Yes, <laughs> good. <laughs> good, good. Title good. alone made me like, oh yeah, I have to do this podcast. This is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just get into it. Tell us who you are and what the hell you do. My name is Rita Brent. My full name is Sharita Brent, but I just shortened it for stage purposes. And um, I'm from Jackson, Mississippi. And up until I was 32 years old, I was still living in Jackson, Mississippi. And then I got an agent and decided to move to New York. So I've been in New York since November 2019, following my comedy dreams. And on the side, I do music. I sing. I play the drums. I was in radio before I got into comedy. So when it's time for me to retire, I would like to get back into radio. But for now, I'm just doing a lot of stand up and uh, just just living my best life, man. Just trying to be kind to people and, uh, you know, and stay safe out here in these COVID-19 streets. Mm-hmm. Your voice is so fitting for radio. I don't know if you're <laughs> a person who likes their accent or one who doesn't like it, but your mm-hmm. accent is so comforting to me. It's like so soothing to listen to. Oh, thank you. You know, I perfected it because I was on uh, public radio. So I was I, for a long time, I was trying to sound like black version of Terry Gross. So I think I finally mastered it. (laughs) (laughs) I love it so much. And something else that I love about you is your ability to talk about heavy subject matter, but Mm -hmm. comedically. You don't distract, but you actually open the door to think and talk about daunting subjects using comedy, which I just think is so cool. That is a thing that I thought about when I constructed this podcast, something that was really important to me to talk about issues, a lot of which are heavy as fuck, but to do so with comedy in mind, um, creating a less you know intimidating gateway for people. But I want to hear specifically why you use comedy as a tool to discuss some heavy and vulnerable subject matter? Well, I figured out that it's people receive and they digest things easier when it's coming to you in a comedic fashion, as opposed to a tweet, uh, (laughs) you know, that is uh, hateful or whatever. You're trying to get your point across with a, uh, and a weird tweet. You know, I said, back in 2013 was the first time I did comedy. And I forgot what I was talking about, uh, like homeless people, just just kind of hacky stuff because I didn't know what I was doing. And then fast forward a couple years, I got divorced. And it was a very painful, t- painful time for me. But once I started talking about it in my comedy, it felt therapeutic. And then people start coming up to me and saying, hey, I'm divorced too, but you helped me feel a little bit better tonight. And so... I said, well, I'm going to use this platform as a way to share my perspective on things, but also just to ease the tension zone, because it's a hard balance to find between being educated, being informed and knowledgeable of the issues and being heavily emotionally impacted by them, but also wanting a break every once in a while, just a, a laugh break. So I just decided to use comedy as that marriage for me to to marry my passion about race and and politics and social uh, topics to humor. It's it's a very fine balance. And I mean, I feel like comedy has just absolutely saved my life. This is this is my superpower. Well, you can see it in your stuff. I think it really elevates 
stand up and it's not mm-hmm. just ah oh, this joke this joke this joke which can be entertaining but mm-hmm. you do that in a way that is educational and and is informative and um yeah it's relatable and, and even like the flip side of that i think to talk about something kind of like what you're saying like the tweet mentality of just like mm-hmm. i'm going to write this anger tweet well to approach it in a different way it, it takes um it takes intelligence, <laughs> uh, which not everyone uses on Twitter, but it, it takes a, a moment to be like, OK, how can I say this in a way that is not going to turn people away? So it, mm-hmm. it, it's like the little extra bit. Right. Yeah. Just not necessarily. Well, I guess you can look at it like in a, in a neutral way, even though I absolutely take sides in my comedy and in my satirical prayers. But it's a it's a universal approach, which is something I'm trying to master. I think I think it's something Dave Chappelle has mastered. Richard Pryor was really good at it. You know, he had black and white people in his audience, but he would be talking about race and the N word. But they would be laughing it up, you know, but absorbing what he was saying. So, yeah, I just want to get to that point where it's it's not angry, but it's sensible enough to where people are like, OK, you know, she's making sense and she's funny. And there's a little education in there as well. Oh my gosh. That reminds me in your special, the, um, you were sponsored by Honda. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, the Eddie Honda Beckham. people. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Correct me up. Um, yes. <laughs> and for people who don't know what I'm referring to. Uh, okay. So if you haven't watched it, Rita has a special. It's called Sip on This Tea. And as my favorite porn star says, get on it. It's so good. You have to watch it. It is hilarious, political, vulnerable, all the things that she's saying right now. And she graces us with her amazing singing voice. It is so good. Thank it you. is available on Vimeo, correct? Yes, and Apple Music and Spotify, all those platforms. But you can rent it or buy it on Vimeo. And I encourage you to actually see it. Yeah, listening to it is cool, but seeing it is a different experience. Oh, completely. I don't, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it is amazing either way, but just watching you is wonderful. So yes, definitely watch it. And it's under 10 bucks. So like, it's not mm-hmm. crazy expensive. So get out there, do it. Um. But in the special, you are very open about being religious and spiritual and in a ton of other stuff that you do, like your satirical prayers, which mm-hmm. are so good. If you haven't <laughs> checked her out on social media too, do that. Um, you have some really, really funny prayers that um, really get me. But, so uh, wait, this last prayer, Tyler, I don't know if I if I mentioned it to you personally, but the one I did about uh, Trump holding the Bible. Oh, my God. Yes. Um, a white guy so called funny. me a cunt under my prayer video. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. I'm really making some waves now. I've gotten called a cunt. And uh, you know, I also just thought about how that absolutely doesn't work on black women, man. Like I was not affected by it <laughs> at all. <laughs> like what? what is a cunt? <laughs> now, if you call me a nappy-headed hoe, I would have been mad. But a cunt, <laughs> not going to get it, bro. <laughs> Well, even the like, I feel like the LGBTQ plus community too, it's just like, that's like a word we've oddly embraced in the last few years. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, bring it on. Come on. Right. That's really funny. That's, but you know, like as a comedian, especially when talking about anything like that, that's success. When someone calls you a name on social media, like. Yeah. That means you really got to them. Yeah. You're yeah. doing good. That's so mm-hmm. awesome. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, fuck that guy. <laughs> That's right. He's blocked. <laughs> good. Good, good, good. Um, I want to know more about religion and spirituality, but from as a kid, I want to know more about just your life growing up in the Bible Belt, like you said, Mississippi, your involvement in the Christian faith as a black, lesbian, female identifying individual. Did you have a good relationship with religion and spirituality growing up? Well, I did until the preacher started saying I was an abomination. <laughs> yeah, that kind of hurts things, right? <laughs> yeah, that kind of changes the, the mood, you know. So, yeah, I started playing drums in church at the age of eight. And my mother is a piano player and a singer. So she and I have been a musical duo for as long as I've, I've been alive, you know, at least uh, two decades. And so that was my first introduction to the church was watching my mom sing and play piano. And sometimes she would, she would catch the Holy ghost and she would get happy and she'll jump out the piano and run around the church. And I was like, wow, you know, I want to do that one day. <laughs> I never did. I never did, but she was speaking tongues and I was just so impressed and so encouraged by my mother's spiritual relationship, I said, okay, well, this is something I want to do. So I became a Christian at a young age and I didn't start, you know, having questions and things until I got about high school. And that's when I felt, you know, my first set of feelings for women. And I told my mom in the 10th grade, I said, hey, you know, I, I like women. I told her on church grounds, you know, because I was trying to be safe with the admission. I told her when we pulled up to church, I was like, hey, I like women. Yeah. And, you know, she said, well, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't condone it. But of course, I'm not going to treat you any differently because the Bible says it's an abomination. And that is when I started having some spiritual conflicts because I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I didn't ask to like women. Nobody touched me when I was younger, you know, so nothing influenced me. It feels natural to me. So how is it that it's an abomination when it's something that I didn't ask for, number one? But number two, if God made me and he doesn't make mistakes, well, am I a mistake? You know, because mm -hmm. that, that's conflicting to me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to this day, I, I still believe in the Holy Spirit. I still believe in a higher power, but I do not believe that I am an abomination and I'm going to hell for loving the woman that I'm with. Something that feels natural to me, something I didn't ask for. And, um, you know, that has just been a, a conflict for me comedically, because at first I was doing a bunch of churches, you know, and then they started labeling me as a church comedian. And I felt like, well, well now I can never come out because I'm doing comedy in the churches and that's going to, that's going to sacrifice my whole bottom line. And then, you know, in my special, I decided to come out and what do you know, people from churches are still asking me to come perform. So there's a, a little more tolerance than we would like to believe, but there are some church folks who are really bigoted and, and hateful toward um, gay people. And I think sometimes they may just be projecting and, and not owning up to what they feel on the inside of themselves. Um, but, you know, I, I just decided to not be in the closet anymore, be honest about who I am, uh, because a lot of people can relate to it. So if I if I am that voice for somebody, that voice of reason or the representative and, and I speak when when they don't feel the power to, I'm totally fine with taking on that responsibility, though. I don't want to be anybody's president. I'll just say that because <laughs> everybody's <laughs> like, you need to be the gay president. I'm like, nope. Mm, I'm I don't good. Even really like subscribing to labels because I feel like they're so divisive, and it 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 
you know, it fuels so much hatred. You know, it's like, oh, you're a Democrat, I can't mess with you. Or you're a conservative, I can't mess with you. So I try not to, to subscribe to the to the labels, but I do understand why they are needed. Yeah. Well, in your in your special, like you said, you 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 came out and I I think little moments like that, um, they might seem small to some people. They might seem really large to other people, but that's a big moment for, I think, yeah. everyone. And just having one person stand up and say something, um, just who knows who is going to watch your special and the lives that it will affect and the people who they will talk to and the people that they'll talk to. And just, I, I think we underestimate moments like that. Um, so mm-hmm. it was awesome to see. What was the response like from that crowd in Mississippi on that stage with an audience full of people? What was, um, what was the response like? Yeah. So it, up to the moment I was contemplating whether or not I was going to come out. Like I had it on my, my notepad. Okay. And I had like a, it was a PowerPoint presentation going in the back. So there was a, a rainbow picture in there and I had advised my producer. I said, Hey, I don't know if I'm going to tell this, this joke, I don't know if I'm going to come out or not. So just, just be prepared. But what happened was while this, this was during the first show, because I had two shows that night during the first show, I saw a couple that I'm friends with, uh, Sika and Ashley Nuxolo, and they recently got married. I went to their wedding and they were on the front row looking at me. And the moment I paused and said, I'm not going to tell the joke. I looked at them and I said, OK, this that is the sign that I need that I need to do this because they did it. They're living openly and freely now. I can do it, too. And my mom was on the front row, too. And she didn't know that I was going to come out at the show. I did not tell her, even though <laughs> she's known for a long time who I am. She has always been, you know, kind of um, um She's been afraid of me coming out because of, you know, what that might mean being in the South. But I saw my mom and I saw my 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 friends, Ashley and Sika, and I said, I'm going to come out. And I did it. And the first show, they clapped for about 15, 20 seconds. It was just cheering. Like, whoa, OK, a lot of us already knew. We're glad you finally did it because I had some lifelong friends in the crowd who have known since forever. So they were happy. My little sister, they were cheering. My my current fiance, she was cheering as well. She was on the front row. And so it was a great reception. Now, I didn't get boycotted, you know, and then they didn't tell they didn't tell the second crowd either because I, I did it again during the second show. And it was it was the same great response, you know, a lot of hollering and cheering like, whoa, like we're glad that you finally got that burden lifted off of you. So it was a it was a powerful moment. And afterwards, I was afraid. I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to lose some business. And I actually didn't. I didn't lose any business. People reached out to me and said they felt empowered in that moment and they were really proud of me. And I mean, I'm sure some people did gossip, but I I just hadn't got wind of that and I I don't want to. So and I always feel like if I lost followers because of that, well, you weren't a real supporter in the first place if that alone determines your support of me. So it's been great. That's so awesome. I'm I'm curious about your mom and you now, as the time has evolved and, and gone on, what is y'all's relationship like? Is it still a, a tolerance versus acceptance thing um, as of this point, or has that evolved as well? It's, well, I'm so close with my mom. I I often joke, I tell people I could literally do or be anything. She would still be supportive. I mean, I could tell her, hey, mom, I'm I decided to be a stripper, you know, and she would be like, well, go, baby, you be the best stripper you can. I'll so bring the, the dollar bills. Is, 
<laughs> yeah, I'll bring the dollar bills straight from church. Tithing <laughs> um, but the thing is, my mom is is so loving. She is a a very very deep lover, and she's a um, an empath. She's she's very emotional, and um, you know, whatever she believed before I came out to her, it has been challenged since that point because this is like, well, this is my baby, you know, so I can't harbor whatever feelings the church tells me to feel toward others that I can't do that when this is my baby, this is my child. So it's been a a teaching type thing. You know, I've taught her, well, hey, this is why, uh, you know, transgenders feel this way. Uh, So it's just been a teaching thing because you have to think about she's been in the church since since she was six years old. And so it's been a lot of, of, you know, training and a lot of rhetoric that it's hard to challenge, you know, because like, well, this is what the Bible says. This is what all the preachers have said for my five decades of living. So it's just been a lot of teaching. And we have a a very loving relationship to this day. She loves my fiance. And uh, I'm, I'm very, very proud of where our relationship is. Now, she would still prefer that I don't, quote unquote, tell all my business, but We'll just have to agree to disagree there. I, I don't tell it all, you know, but, you know, she's still just worried because she's a mom. So she's still worried about any kind of backlash that I might get. And I'm just like, I don't care. Bring it on. Well, it seems like she was an amazing influence as far as your spirituality goes and your relationship to church. And that obviously has bled into your creative uh, all that you do creatively. What denomination, out of curiosity, within the Christian faith, what what denomination is it? Baptist. Baptist. Of yeah. course. Good, good, uh-huh. good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up like Church of Christ, which is kind of like, I feel like the sister to Baptist. Mm-hmm. So I get that. It's a lot of entertaining stuff going on in church too, man. I mean, it's just, it's so much material, you know? So I like doing church gigs because I just make fun of stuff that people, the the congregants are thinking, but they never say. So I just like having this voice. You know, I get to talk about everything. It's great. Some things may come with consequences, but, you know, at least I have the the power to say them. Well, I think it's so relatable. Like that's, I feel like that's why I was so drawn to you when I first saw you is I just was like, yes, (laughs) I get that. I understand (laughs) those jokes. Um, You briefly talk about in your special something that is um, very vulnerable and I think uh, can be relatable also to a lot of people outside of religion and spirituality, which is uh, suicide and how you felt suicidal after your divorce. And let me tell you, I had to rewind and write a quote down because I was just like, I had a goosebump moment. I was like, that is so good. You say you don't need to make a permanent decision in a temporary moment of weakness. Mm -hmm. It's so good. So simple. So great. Um, And you also talk about the suicidal rates of the LGBTQ plus community a little bit, and they are, they're high. And a lot of marginalized groups um, they are impacted by this because mental health care and just health care in general, um, a lot of people don't have access to, or mm-hmm. even if they do, it's not good. <laughs> so right. this is a really important topic to discuss. And I think it was really awesome that you brought that up in your special. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you just talk a little bit about that sensation, what it kind of felt like, and then what led you away, uh, from those suicidal thoughts? 
you know, I was I was just really lonely after my divorce and I was unfaithful. So I carried a whole lot of guilt. You know, I was I was with a man who I loved, but I was not supposed to be with a man. So I was unfaithful with a woman. And uh, that was the main thing that caused our divorce. So I was dealing with a lot of guilt, a lot of shame and just a lot of loneliness and questioning my worth, uh, questioning my integrity. It was just so much that I was dealing with. And I have a, I have a weapon. I, I've you know been armed since forever. And, uh, you know, a couple, for a couple of weeks, I just was looking at the weapon like, you know, could I do this? And, you know, I, I, thankfully I'm a procrastinator, so I never got around to it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I was thinking about it, you know, and then I'll like go wash the dishes or check the mail, you know, and I just kind of forgot to do what my mind was thinking about doing. But, um, yeah, I just felt like, okay, well, if I left today, you know, I would just be free from this pain that I'm feeling. But I also was thinking about my family and how I wouldn't want to, to leave them here to deal with that kind of pain. Uh, I just felt like it would have been selfish of me. Um, and so I just started talking to a couple of friends and telling them what I was feeling, which was it was challenging to do that because uh, their shame typically or stigma when you think about people who are suicidal, you think they're crazy or, you know, you think I, I could never feel that way. And to be feeling that as a, as a black person, you know, I was just like, it, where there's a lot of mental health stigma. And if you go get therapy, you may be labeled as, as crazy or something wrong with you. Yeah. Um, you know, I just said, well, let me just, just get these feelings out and, and tell somebody. And then true enough, after a couple of weeks, they subsided, you know, and I, I just started thinking, well, what if I just start telling the truth in my comedy? Because that's also what I wasn't doing at the time. My material was was still a little hacky and I wasn't being com- completely honest. And I just decided, well, I'm just going to talk about this stuff in my comedy and use it as a as a therapeutic tool. And when I did that, it just shifted everything. It was like therapy on stage for me, the vulnerability and the being honest and I was like, oh, okay, well, cool. This is this is my superpower, being able to talk about these things on stage instead of just dealing with them by myself, alone in my bedroom with a 380 on the bed. So just <laughs> being able to talk to people and being able to talk about it on stage and, and find some kind of humor in it, you know, those things saved my life. But it was it was scary. It was scary to to be that low. Talking to just one person or even, you know, I've heard people say even the act of saying something out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you don't necessarily have a person uh, in your immediate circle to talk to, um, yeah, just saying something out loud and hearing it can mm-hmm. really help. And that's what it was. I actually said aloud. And I remember it was a conversation with my former manager, Miranda, I remember I just told her, I said, I don't want to be here. And when I said it, it sent chills through my body because I immediately thought, wait, yes, I do. I do want to be here. And so saying it out loud just triggered something different for me mentally. 
Um, and then I immediately prayed and was like, all right, God, I was just playing. I want to be here. Don't, don't, don't let me die. You know, <laughs> this is so, not a satirical prayer. This is real. <laughs> right. This, this is real. <laughs> Life saving Jesus. I was just playing. Um, so yeah, you're right. Saying it out loud, it, it really did shift something for me, you know, because your words have power. And so I immediately was like, okay, no, 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 wait, I do want to be here. But it was it was a process, you know, getting to that point where I felt worthy enough to be here. And it just boiled down to, well, what is my purpose now? Now that I'm not a wife, now that, you know, I, I'm this this life, I have to start it anew. What is my purpose now? And so I just really had to write that down and do some introspection to, to figure that out. And that helped me a lot. Well, doing work inside is terrifying. I can't think of a better word. It is, it, it can be really, really scary. Um, and especially when someone does feel alone and they're not seen, not empowered or just given basic tools, um, from society or their community, then that person is going to suffer. And, and that's a lot to ask of, of a person to dive in, to claim their own self-worth when mm-hmm. the world around them is not. <laughs> right. That's, right. Um, that's a heavy thing to ask of someone or a community. And then also to look out and then see that that community might not be supporting you. Your world, your country might not be supporting you. Uh, you say Mississippi in your <laughs> special, uh, you said Mississippi has nice racists, which <laughs> really cracked me up because again, just like the church jokes, I knew exactly who you were talking about. I grew up in Texas. I grew up with these nice Christian racists. And I was like, yes, I know those people. That's Jill and Bob. Um, <laughs> so would you just explain though, to those who might not know what that means, um, what is a nice racist? A nice racist is basically someone who's racist and they don't realize it because it's such a way of life. I was I was watching the Ahmaud Arbery case. Uh, there was a hearing. Ahmaud Arbery was the young black man who was running and uh, he you know, was hunted down by two vigilantes and shot down. Mm-hmm. And one of the lawyers for Roddy Bryan, who was filming the whole thing, he um, was talking about racial slurs in the hearing. And uh, one of the one of the murderers, the, one of the McMichaels stood over Maude Aubrey's body after he was killed and called him an effing N word. And um, the lawyer was like, well, hey, that doesn't mean he's racist. That's just kind of how it is in the South. Right. That, that that language is not uncommon in the South. Right. He tried to downplay it, you know. And so I got to thinking, I was like, well, he is probably a nice racist because he just thinks that using the N-word and racial slurs are just a part of the South. You know, when you come to the South, you're, you're supposed to expect that and it's not a big deal or that it, it may not have a certain intent behind it. It's just the way it always has been. Mm-hmm. And especially being in Mississippi, you know, when grandfathers and great grandfathers were in the KKK and you're younger and they're passing down those racist values to you, you, you may not understand that the N-word is actually not our names. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If, if yep. you heard that growing up all the time. So as people, nice racists, in my opinion, are people who are not aware of their racist ways or they try their best to normalize it and with, without 
caught with, without holding themselves accountable, you know? So this idea that, oh, you know, I, I have a black friend, but I, I saw something on Twitter the other day. It was like, well, a racist can, can not like black people, but can still like one black person. You know what I'm saying? It's yep. just like, well, I like Rita, but I don't necessarily like Obama or Michelle, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's someone who is unaware of their racism and they, they treat it as, as something that's normalized, maybe unknowingly until they get called out on it. And then they're like, Oh, well, I, I didn't know this is how it is down here. <laughs> Something that popped in my head in church when we would have like, this is a mission weekend. We're going to go into some underprivileged community and we're going to paint their houses. And the what ended up happening was just we would have this weird slideshow of white people helping some family that was not white mm-hmm. and then pictures of like all the good that we were doing for their house, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's a lot of um, churches in the South that they have this weird concept of uh, what underprivileged means, um, mm-hmm. usually meaning a color, not actually anything to do with social class. Right. <laughs> um Right. And um, anyway, that that was a, a memory that popped in my head because how bizarre is that? Right. To the the even like the slideshow mentality. I don't know if you had slideshows in your church ever, but we <laughs> yeah. we were very basic church that like like music was um, like thought to be sinful. So we didn't have music and stuff, but <laughs> but we did have slideshows, damn it. And oh. um, and in those slideshows, it was just a bunch of these like white people smiling, doing good, quote unquote, in the world. And just like, how bizarre is that? It's just so funny to me thinking back. Mm-hmm. And two more examples, uh, like if if somebody says, oh, you're cute to be dark skinned. Uh, yeah, okay. cringy. Yeah. But yeah, like that's that's a that's a nice racist thing. Um, or like like Chris Rock has a joke about, oh, you speak so well to be black. Um, mm-hmm. And then a personal thing was when I was in science class in high school, one of my teachers, she she called me a piccaninny. I don't know how I had my hair that day, but she's like, oh, you just look like a cute little piccaninny. And I didn't realize till later. I was like, hey, a piccaninny, that's a slur, you know, for like a little minstrel looking black little girl. Uh-huh. And, uh, but she was smiling. She thought she was complimenting me, you know, like a little piccaninny. And I was like, what oh, an asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I didn't realize until I, was an, uh, until I was an adult, you know, that that was a slur. And I should go back and, and message her on Facebook and be like, hey, you remember the time you called me a piccaninny? You're canceled. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Though Those are nice racist examples. <laughs> Now, a uh, example of a of a violent and not nice racist, Donald Trump. Um, you have a wonderful song in your special called Donald Trump is a Racist, which is so extremely relevant right now. Every day something new comes out that I'm like, oh, my gosh, I just like cannot like every day he somehow tops his bottom. And mm-hmm. I'm just like, how are you going lower than you already are? I just don't understand it. But um. You also talk about, um, even outside of him, about just the difference in our society, the difference between uh, specifically female-related, between Black and white women and how they are perceived in media if Black women even get the chance to be featured in media at all. And um, I'm curious, as a 
Black female, as a lesbian, what are you hoping comes from these current events? Well, the big thing, of course, is reform, change. You know, I I participated in a Black Lives Matter march in Jackson, Mississippi recently. It was really powerful. And uh, there were Black folks, white folks, children, you name it, Democrats, Republicans, everybody came together. And I thought, you know, this is beautiful, but what is actually going to be done? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, after we finish marching, is the flag, is the Confederate flag in Mississippi going to be taken down? Or are we just going to talk about it and chant, take down the flag, but it still remains for another, ever, how many ever years? So, yeah, my hope is for actual reform, actual change. I'm not so much concerned about changing the hearts of racists because I don't believe that's possible. I think that is a personal decision and a personal conviction. And the onus is not on me to change a racist. It's on the racist to change the racist. Um, So I'm I'm not too much concerned about that, but I'm more concerned about laws. I'm more concerned about, you know, cops being actually being prosecuted and convicted for these crimes they commit, not just being put on paid administrative leave or being acquitted. You know, Mm -hmm. I want to see some change, something different than what we've seen in the past. But it is justice for us, for for black people, for minorities, for underprivileged, for whomever, you know, there there needs to be uh, an actual change. So and I I mean, we're seeing some things be done. I know the the Minneapolis, um, they in Minneapolis, they just decided to part ways with the the police department. Yeah. But yeah, some bodies have too much power. I think the police, you know, they're one of those bodies. And and, uh, John Oliver was talking about the way that the policemen were performed. It was a a, were formed. It was a slave patrol to to keep slaves in their place. So once we look at the history of these groups and, and organizations and how they were formed, you know, we'll see that they have never been for us. You know, a lot of it has has been put in place to continue marginalizing and controlling and to to enforce this idea of supremacy and superiority. So uh, I want to see that changed and hopefully it will come. I don't know if it'll come tomorrow, but, you know, I would like to see it in my lifetime. So talking and chanting and marching and protesting is one thing. But, you know, we we have to hold the people in these high positions accountable, you know, the president and governors and mayors and um, you know, they have to be ousted. So I'm really, really satisfied with some things I'm seeing on social media where uh, folks are posting racist things and they're getting caught and they're getting fired. Yep. Because those are the people who are controlling loans being given or they're the people who are controlling black people being jailed disproportionately. So, you know, when you are an undercover racist, you, you have a lot of power. But when you are overt in your actions and you show it, then we can hold you accountable and oust you. So, yeah, that was a really, really long freaking answer. But that's that's it. <laughs> no, it was a good answer. I I've been thinking, obviously, a lot about cops and, and just like how I was raised and in thinking of what a cop was. Mm-hmm. And that to me is really fascinating because fear is just so freaking good. Mm-hmm. It is such a good way to get things done. And as a child to be told like, okay, you have these people who are supposed to protect you from bad. 
that's a, that's a good feeling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it sounds like a great idea, but then what are they protecting us from? Right. (laughs) Like what is there to be afraid of? Like, like, that's great. But like, are we in like an Amazon and they are like protecting us from like lions? No. Like, what is the, like, what is the thing that they are actually protecting us from? Um, And then they actually go above protection and it goes into other things and it gets so muddy and not, not good whatsoever. So it's just, it's very fascinating though, like just the idea of fear and what fear can do to a society to where we think we need police in the way that we have police now. Yeah. It was, it's brainwashing unknowingly um, because we just kind of go with the way things have always been. Yeah. Just like, just like in, you know, during segregated times, some of those folks didn't even believe in segregation, but it was like, well, everybody else believes in it. So I guess it's something I'm supposed to believe in, you know? So once we, well, independent thinkers are probably the most dangerous because we start challenging systems and, and, and organizations and governments and the way things work. You know, we start challenging these things. Like you just said, like, why do we have police? Why do we allow an elite group of people to run around with deadly weapons. <laughs> no and, sense. Yeah, and tear gas. Why are we afraid to step in and save a George Floyd? This man is a man. He's a she's a woman just like I am. You know, we shouldn't be afraid of people that we're equal to. It makes yeah. no sense. You speak about the importance of voting and especially talking about after the riots calm after the marches stop, what to do? Well, tell me about it. What is the importance of voting and why should people do it? Well, historically, if you are a black person, you should vote for the culture. You should vote because countless, countless of our ancestors and allies died so that we might have the the right to vote. And to me, that explains why it's so powerful. Who, If it were not a powerful tool, why would folks be willing to give their life for it? Um, so you think about Martin Luther King, you think about uh, the three civil rights workers and Vernon Dahmer. They were, they were killed in Mississippi all because they were trying to get Black people the right to vote. So just as respect and honor to my ancestors who literally gave their lives uh, I vote because I, I think about them when I'm at the polls, like they died. So I might be able to stand in this line and vote for somebody who I thought could bring change to the community. Um, so, yeah, like a lot of people say, it, it is your voice. You know, it's not enough to be on Facebook complaining about, you know, uh, road work and infrastructure. You can talk and type all day long, but unless you're doing what you can to bring in that local official who will work to get things improved in a city, then you just need to be quiet. Voting is your voice, you know, unless you're going to start a, you know, some kind of grassroots thing where you get it done on your own. Um, That is the way of things. We have local politicians, we have local leaders. And so I think everything starts on a local level. And honestly, I find myself more impacted by local politics than I do national politics, because I don't know what Trump is talking about half the time when he's talking about black unemployment and he's done this and he's done that. (laughs) Trump ain't done shit for me, but I have been 
you know, more impacted by things that happen locally. So that's why I think it's important to vote, especially locally, if you want to see some change, you know, in, in your proximity. I mean, those those are the people who are in power, politicians. They, they make a lot of decisions um, that, that may affect us, trickle down, as they say. Um, so I would just prefer to have somebody who at least pretends to have my best interest at heart in those positions. And, you know, just to be honest, vote Trump out because it's just, it's just goddamn embarrassing. Uh, to have him as president. It is embarrassing. Like, I don't give a shit. The Rock, Kevin Hart, anybody could be president right now. It's oh, just please. embarrassing yes. <laughs> to have him as president. And it still feels surreal. I know it's been three years, but it still feels surreal that people were so misogynistic and so overreacting about some damn emails that they were just like, yeah, we're going to vote this fool in. It, it just it's unbelievable to me. And it, to me, will go down as one of the most embarrassing moments in American history. Can you imagine even 20 years from now teaching this in history? Like how, <laughs> how embarrassing it really is just like, it hurts my soul. It hurts everything in me. I just, I cannot mm. understand. Yeah, it's a bad, it's a bad look, you know? And it to, a me, bad look. <laughs> to me, it was just, it was, I don't know. I never thought we were in a post-racial society, but it, it seems like this is some kind of revenge for Obama being president, you know? And I I just, I thought we were better than that as American people. I really did. I thought we were better than voting Trump as president over a clearly more qualified woman. Um, but you know, if even if it would it were the lesser of two evils, that was her, you know, but people just found a way. And I believe it's because she was a woman. I don't think it had anything to do with her being white. I believe it was because she was a woman. Yeah. Same with the presidential candidates right now. Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, they were great candidates. But because so good. women, yeah, America's like, nah, we don't really trust women. I mean, we, we trust you to create all of mankind, but that's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we trust you to birth us and bring us into the world, but that's it. <laughs> Which is no big deal. No big no, deal at it, all. Nope, has nothing to do with your existence. No big deal. Hopefully one day very, very soon, even if it is not you, although I would definitely vote for you. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> for people out there needing a gateway into some tough subject matter, who might um, not only need a break from the immense trauma that is going on right now and affecting so many people, um, please, please check Rita out. She is so awesome and a light and just um, doing some impactful, really wonderful stuff. Rita, will you just tell people where they can find you and the hilarious and important work that you're putting out there. Well, thank you, Tyler, uh, for such kind words. Everybody can follow me at Rita Brent Comedy on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. My website is RitaBrent.com where you can find all that content as well. And the big thing I want you to see right now is my special Sip on This Tea. It's really good. I, I mix in some music with some comedy, and these are original songs of mine. Um, I have a song about R. Kelly pissing on people. I have Donald <laughs> Trump is a racist. My song, Rock Me Like a Pothole, all that is on the special. 
And uh, my abs are out, guys. So if you just kind of want to bask in my sexiness, please watch the special. It's on Vimeo. You can rent it or buy it. And if you want to just listen to it, it's on Apple Music and Spotify and iTunes. And yeah, if you want to book me for anything, read a Brent comedy at gmail.com. So I'm doing virtual shows on Zoom. And if you want to book me in person, depending on where it is and, you know, what kind of safety measures you have in place, I am open to that as well. But Tyler, thank you so much for having me. This has been uh, one of the best podcast interviews I've had. So thank you so much. Oh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. No problem. Isn't she just incredible? Okay, Uh, let's just quickly break down this awesome discussion. I'm going to give you my main takeaways. Number one, comedy can be used as a superpower, a gateway to open up and have tough conversations. Number two, you don't need to make a permanent decision in a temporary moment of weakness. Number three, voice your struggles. Say them out loud. Your words have power. Number four, being nice does not mean you aren't racist. Number five, your vote matters. Now get out there and vote. I have posted links in the show notes for Rita. Definitely make sure to watch her special, Sip on This Tea. And please follow this podcast. Subscribe, comment, leave a review. It means a great deal to a podcast starting out. So I greatly appreciate you taking the time to do that. Also, keep in touch. Reach out to me. I would really love to hear about your spiritual journey and where you're at. I post other fun things throughout the week on all the platforms, so check them out. You'll be kept updated on the show, given challenges, motivational memes, just splendid content. Now, because this content is heavy at times, you might not be able to laugh it off. And if you are struggling and having a hard time, I will always post helplines in the show notes. So please reach out if you need to. Just remember, you are special, you are purposeful, and you are fucking beautiful. Have a blessed day, y'all.